Today on the show, I'm happy to have Ian L. Patterson. He's the CEO of Plurilock. They're securing digital identity in the workplace, behavioral biometrics, and AI. Now, before this, you had a bit of a train wreck with a VC-backed company. What were the lessons that you took away from that? Pat, it's great to it's great to be here. And definitely, I actually I sometimes joke that my my MBA education was not was not had through any sort of school, but it was actually from the school of hard knocks. When I was uh, pretty early in my career, I was fortunate enough to join a venture-backed company right when they raised their first round of institutional investment. And so this venture-backed company, they were, they were a very exciting space. They were doing big data and analytics. And I joined, I think it was about a month or two before they actually closed the investment. And so I got to see the culture change completely from a, a very founder-led organization uh, with a lot of energy and enthusiasm and watched as a employee there as a participant watched as the culture changed completely there was a whole series of of executives going coming into the company leaving the company very quickly there was a lot of there was a lot of pressure and there was a lot of of short deadlines and through the whole experience i found it was a fascinating one to live through because it just provided so many learnings and there are still lessons on an almost daily basis that I'm still putting into practice as a result of that experience. So what were some of the takeaways that you now are putting into practice? I think the big thing is that regardless of what funding structure, whether you're a venture backed company and you're private, whether you're bootstrapped, which was the company that I did after that one, or whether you're publicly traded, which is where I currently am right now, you, you really have to focus on the business fundamentals. Now, the, the language for that changes, the way that you finance that changes, the expectations change as well. A public market investor is going to have a different set of return expectations than somebody in private equity or somebody who's, who's running a venture capital firm. But ultimately, you're, it doesn't actually change the, the core premise, which is that you're trying to create value. You're trying to build a business. And there can be a lot of different ways of going about and, and arriving at that goal. But you have to keep that goal in mind. So with that goal in mind, now you are in, you said your company now is publicly traded. So is, is that a whole different experience in being in the public realm? Yeah, definitely. I think one of the big differences here is compared to a private company where you have one venture capitalist on your cap table. You might have some other smaller shareholders, but you, you're really working for one organization. In the public markets, you're working for hundreds or thousands of, of individual investors and shareholders, and a lot of them need attention. So you need to talk to these people and you can't just have one conversation. You have to have multiple conversations. So it becomes a very different operating tempo. I think the other big difference is that when you're in a private company, the success that you have today may not show up for uh, months, quarters, or even years before you get a, a, a new rating on what the, the price of your equity is. Whereas again, in comparison to the public markets, you're rated on a second by second basis, as long as the markets are open. So it's a, again, it's just a very different culture. It's a very different operating tempo. Um, but it's still driving towards the same thing, which is, are you building a real business that can endure over time? And, and how are you creating value? And you've also been through a couple acquisitions. So can you talk through how they came about, what that experience was like? Yes. And I, I have the benefit of actually being on both sides of the table. As somebody who has sold assets and bought assets, 
uh, it's actually, it's a very different, it's a very different experience. One of the things that I've always found uh, surprising is when you're a, a private company entrepreneur and you're looking to get acquired, a lot of the advice that you're, that you receive, a lot of the characterizations that you hear from people about the exit process or about the acquisition process is really geared towards making you think that it's a perfectly efficient market. Everybody's out to get you and, and they're trying to exact the best possible deal at your expense. And what I've found actually in practice is that in a lot of cases, the acquirer, the buyer is just as concerned, if not more concerned about the success of the ultimate transaction than the seller is. And in a lot of cases, there's room for creating win situations from both parties. There's also, there's genuine desire, at least in my experience, for the acquirer to figure out what is right for the business. And maybe that means paying a slightly higher price. Maybe that means giving on a term or two, even if it's to their short-term detriment, because it's actually the right thing to do on a long-term, uh, on, on a long-term basis. And so I think that's something that as a private company founder, I didn't hear as much about, and, and I certainly didn't receive that, that sort of guidance. How was it with the large acquisition by eBay? I can't actually speak to that one because I wasn't there at the time. Okay. But then you went on from that venture to then have your own company founded and then have that acquired as well. And that was a fast exit. So how did that, was that like day one, you, like, uh, you wanted to sell that thing from the beginning? Was the fast already set? So it, it's a good question. I, and I would say that, that the answer is, is no, there, there wasn't a, a specific uh, sale in mind. I think that the, the thing that I found um, interesting, but also super helpful is being able to sample all these different funding strategies, whether you're raising venture capital, whether you're just trying to build a, a bootstrapped company with no external capital, um, or whether you ultimately pursue something in the public markets where you're, you're going public, you're raising capital, and then you're doing additional offerings thereafter. I think that it, the choice of how to capitalize a company is usually specific to the problem that you're trying to solve, i.e. not every business is venture scale. That's something that you hear a lot, but also not every business is appropriate for the public markets. And by the way, not every business is appropriate to try and bootstrap. You wouldn't want to try and build an asteroid mining company uh, on the basis of trying to bootstrap that. It's, it's a capital intensive business. So what I've taken away from those experiences is that the way you capitalize a business is a tool in the toolbox, and you need to be thoughtful about when and how to apply those tools for your specific business. So for somebody who doesn't have the education in that realm, and they have a business, but you have the skill and expertise, and you've been in flipping businesses, now you're going public, what do you recommend they do to get that education? Is it living through it? Is it just trying? No, I, I'm thinking about all, all of the people who were gracious enough with their time to provide advice. And so I think my advice is surround yourself with people who are smarter than you and just be very transparent and upfront and say, listen, I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm willing to work hard and I'm very coachable. And that will get you a lot farther and will allow you to access people that you would be surprised with. Good tip. What are you doing now with Florilock? What is the, the product you've brought to market here? Perlock sits at the intersection between cybersecurity and artificial intelligence. So we are helping our customers defend against threats and also meet regulatory obligations. Uh, our customers include governments, including the U.S. federal government, uh, a number of U.S. states, the Canadian federal government, as well as large commercial enterprises. And so we're helping our customers with their cybersecurity problems, 
with understanding what their compliance obligations are and how to meet them uh, by using cybersecurity uh, solutions. There's a, a portion of our business which actually is a software company. And so we build and sell AI-driven solutions that help predominantly with data security and identity. Um, but the trend over the last couple of months is that we've been spending a lot of time working with our clients around how to safely use generative AI. So both for, just from a, a consultative approach, but also we, we recently launched a product called PromptGuard, and it allows businesses to safely use generative AI like ChatGPT without disclosing uh, personally identifiable information or other forms of, of sensitive data. So we're in a really exciting time because uh, I think a lot of uh, a lot of companies, regardless of what industry they're in, but also regardless of what size they are, are asking the same question, which is, how does AI impact myself and my organization? How do I safely make use of it? But how do I also do that in a way that I don't incur additional risk? And in fact, we get some guardrails in place. So it's a very exciting time. With PromptGuard, how is it that, you, so you're essentially what you're on top of like a platform, let's say ChatGPT, yet the personal information is not shared. How exactly does that work? Yeah, that's a good question. We act, think of it almost like a, a firewall that sits between the organization and public AI models like ChatGPT. And mm -hmm. so we scan and analyze the content when a, a user tries to put in content that is restricted or, or in some way protected. We'll strip it out, we'll anonymize it, we'll send the, the rest of it to the public AI model. Uh, when it comes back, we'll reinsert the restricted data and then serve it back to the user. So think of it like guardrails where we're still allowing you to, to get the benefit of those AI tools, but we're doing so in a way that, that helps enterprises stay safe without, without risking their sensitive data. Oh, I can see the need for that. That's a great tool. So if our listeners wanted to get in touch with your company about that tool or some of your other services, how could they do so? So best way is going to plurilock.com. And there's a couple of different calls to action. If you're interested as, a, as an investor, you can go to the investor section. If you're interested in signing up for uh, beta access to PromptGuard, you can also do that. Or if you just want to connect with me on LinkedIn, it's Ian L. Patterson, Patterson's with one T. And uh, I, I tend to share a lot of content around what's new within cybersecurity. So if it's something that you feel like you need to keep an eye on, best way of, of staying up to date is to connect with me there and, uh, and, and see the content that we post. Perfect. Thank you, Ian, for coming on the show. And thank you, everybody, for listening to another episode of Failing to Success. Make sure to leave a five-star review. I'm your host, Chad Kalecki, and we'll see you next time.